Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Today we have another special presentation. We're going to hear from Marwan Mekawar of York University in Canada and the author of a new book, Protest and Mass Mobilization, Authoritarian Collapse and Political Change in North Africa. Uh, this podcast is a presentation which Marwan Mekawar is giving at George Washington University, um, and um, we are very happy to welcome Marwan to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for giving me the opportunity to present here and for all your support throughout the years. So my book examines different cases of social mobilization, it happened immediately before and after the start of the Arab revolutions of 2011. The starting point of my book is an incident which occurred a few months before the actual start of the 2011 Tunisian revolution in a small Tunisian town called Monastir. So Monastir is a small touristic town of approximately 80,000 inhabitants located in the eastern coast of Tunisia. So on March 2010, so approximately nine months before uh, the start of the Tunisian Revolution, the municipality of Monastir revoked the license of a young street vendor named Abdeslam Trimesh, who used to sell food products in the center of the city. So in reaction to the municipality's decision, Trimesh sprayed gas on his body and burned himself publicly in front of the local city hall. Uh, the dramatic self-immolation of the young man created a considerable commotion uh, within the local population. His gesture, which was uh, a direct consequence of the contempt of the local authorities, who revoked his license in order to give it to an associate of the regime, was particularly shocking and could have been avoided simply if the fire extinguishers uh, in the municipal office near which uh, Trimesh burned himself, were operational. The following days, parts of the population started clashing with the police, and the governor ordered the transfer of the young man to a specialized hospital, where he died on March 11th. You can actually see him on the picture on the top, lying in his hospital bed. Now, on the day of his funerals, thousands of demonstrators accompanied his coffin to the uh, uh, town cemetery chanted angry slogans at the local governments. A number of angry protesters threw rocks at the municipality and other public buildings. But despite uh, the deep sense of injustice uh, and humiliation felt by everyone, uh, by those present, the funerals ended peacefully and the city regained its calm on the following days. Now, fast forward nine months later to the now famous case of Sidi Bouzid, where an almost identical event led to a completely different result. On December 17, the now famous Mohamed Bouazizi, uh, a young street vendor whose waist scale was just confiscated by a municipal police officer, burned himself in front of the local town hall. As in Monastir, the suicide of the young street vendor was sparked by the perceived uh, contempt of the local authorities, and as in Monastir, could have been avoided if the fire extinguishers near the location where he burned himself were operational. 
as in monastir, the people of Sidi Bouzid quickly congregated around the location of the attempted suicide, shouted angry slogans against the government, and threw various objects at the, at the police. However, as the badly burnt Bouazizi was transferred to the same hospital where Trimish was sent a couple of months earlier, you can see him on the picture at the bottom um, with Ben Ali visiting him a few days before uh, Ben Ali's departure, uh, well, as he was transferred to that hospital, a number of respected members of the local community quickly mobilized to condemn the negligence and contempt shown by the local authorities. So on the following night, violent clashes erupted between the city's youth and members of the police. Confrontations quickly spread to neighboring towns and villages before reaching the rest of the country and paving the way uh, for the fall of Ben Ali's regime three weeks later. So the starting point of my book is precisely the puzzle that I just presented, which is why did the protests in Sidi Bouzid spread so quickly to the rest of the country, whereas those in Monastir remained geographically limited a few months ago? On the structural level, nothing changed between March and December 2010, so why did one incident peter out, whereas the others did not? Beyond Tunisia, my book attempts to unravel the reasons why some acts of protest trigger mass mobilization, whereas others do not. So why did the protests in the Libyan city of Benghazi fail to evolve into national mobilization in February uh, 2006, whereas similar events five years later led to um, and that took a national dimension very quickly. And finally, why is it that none of the numerous acts of protest that happened every week in Morocco and even more in Algeria, why is it that none of them is able to generate uh, mass mobilization in these two countries? Well, one theoretical framework that is particularly uh, useful for understanding why people engage in collective action at particular junctures is the logic of informational cascades. So informational cascades occur when, and I'm citing um, Bikshandani, Hirschleifer, and Welsh, uh, they occur when it is optimal for an individual, having observed the actions of those ahead of him, to follow the behavior of the preceding individual without regard to his own information, end of quote. So the question of informational cascades and herding behavior is at the heart of several bodies of uh, literature, ranging from the traditional literature on social movements, to marketing business models, to chaos theory, and to various economic models of social learning. So scholars of management try to understand, for instance, why companies invest or divest in sequence. Uh, human resource managers try to understand why employers do not hire perfectly qualified candidates when they see that those that candidates were not hired by other employers in the past. Um, criminologists try to understand why levels of crime increase when people see other people commit crime. And of course, um, zoologists try to understand the logic of herding behavior with animals. Uh, so an experiment conducted in 1990 by um, Andrew Permankowski 
in relation to the mating choice of female deer showed, for instance, that mating strategies are strongly correlated with the choices of other females. So they took basically this very unattractive male deer uh, that no female deer was interested in, and then they put a female deer next to him, and all of a sudden the female deer who were not interested became interested in that particularly unattractive male deer. And I want you to keep this funny anecdote in mind because it's at the heart, really, of this informational logic that is at the, that sort of explains some of the mobilization dynamic that happened in the Arab world. Now, the logic of informational cascades can be uh, used to understand social mobilization, but how? While the traditional literature on social movements highlights the importance of political agents via the formal and informal resources they help provide during critical junctures. I'm thinking of people like um, Tilly, Tara, Laporta, who wrote on this extensively. Uh, my research actually focuses on an alternative explanation based on the signaling logic created by the involvement of those critical actors around specific opportunities for social mobilization. So for informational cascade theorists, I'm thinking about people like um, Quran, Timur Quran, Buenda Mesquita, Quishali, Livni, and Megaloni, um, citizens living in under authoritarian regimes face a major informational problem. Because the state controls access to local information, and because people are afraid to voice their opinion, uh, against the regime, disgruntled citizens are largely cut off from each other and are unable to evaluate the level, the level of popular dissatisfaction with the regime. So an aggrieved citizen may be aware that you know, his neighbors and his family members are unhappy with the regime, his friends, but he has no way of knowing whether uh, people in other cities are also unhappy with the regime, or even more, whether people in the secret services are also unhappy with the regime, or the army, or the police. So before taking to the streets, disgruntled citizens need to receive a signal telling them that large parts of the population are also unhappy with the regime and willing to mobilize against it. So for Bikshandani, here's my friend Walsh, informational cascades occur when individuals receive new information that helps them update their um, beliefs and bandwagon around specific acts of, uh, bandwagon around the actions of others. Uh, now, signals can be violent or nonviolent um, and include actions such as uh, high profile defections, strikes, road blockades, political assassinations, terrorist attacks. And what they do is that they break the informational silence in an authoritarian country and help everyone realize that whatever they are feeling at the individual level is actually shared by uh, the rest of the population. Now, parts of the uh, literature on informational cascades, notably Susan Lohmann's piece on uh, the Leipzig protests in Eastern Germany in the late 80s, early 90s, also show that information originating from respected actors has more value than information generated by less known personalities. So in particular, the literature on informational cascades shows that mobilization by moderates sends a more um, significant message than mobilization by extremists. 
So whereas the average citizen does not usually relate to uh, actions taken by non, what he, what he or she perceives as non-conformist extremists, that same citizen is highly sensitive to protest actions taken by similarly moderate individuals and is much more willing to bandwagon uh, on protest activities uh, when they are involved. So the example that comes to mind is if you see a protest against, say, uh, a tuition hike in, um, in university fees, right? And you just see a bunch of undergrads protesting, you will just look at the protest and tell yourself, oh, it's business as usual. But if you see your grandma or your aunt participating in that protest, or actors that you don't expect to be participating in that protest, joining it, the kind of signal you will receive will be different. So in this perspective, Lohmann's findings suggest that in authoritarian countries, the symbolic importance of intermediate actors increases with their proximity to the regime. The closer these actors are to the regime, the louder the signal generated by their involvement in local protests is to the rest of the population. Finally, intermediate actors nourish informational cascades in two other uh, important ways that are uh, of particular relevance to the diffusion of a revolutionary dynamic in the Arab world. So on the one hand, intermediate actors uh, provide a number of formal and informal resources, underlined by terror, for instance, which help the rest of the population overcome both its fear of the authorities and the challenge of collective action. So by offering secure locations for demonstrations, relative immunity from state repression, legal advice, respected intermediate actors are able to protect mobilization during its early stages, or its very early stages, before the signal about the presence of an opportunity for contestation is fully received by the rest of the population. On the other hand, intermediate actors' contacts with national and international media also nourish mobilization by helping raise awareness about the level of dissatisfaction with the regime. So both factors generate an informational cascade by increasing the visibility of particular acts of protests and signaling in an explicit way that important actors in the population are engaging in contentious politics. So what explains the successful informational cascade that followed the death of Bouazizi in, uh, in, uh, in Sidi Bouzid and the failure of the one in Monastir? And what explains the development of mass mobilization or its absence elsewhere in North Africa? Um, this is a picture of uh, an example of an incident that can trigger, uh, that can signal the presence of something unusual. It's a road blockade near Gaza uh, in March 2012. Uh, so in order to answer my puzzle, I used within case analysis in Tunisia and Algeria and cross-comparison between Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. I did not really seek to compare the four countries rather than juxtapose them in order to uh, provide more depth to my within-case analysis, uh, which will be the focus of this talk. So between December 2011 and May 2012, I've conducted fieldwork in Algeria and Tunisia and made more than 70 formal interviews with 23% uh, of uh, the interviewees women. 
I talked to the families of the young men involved in the incidents I described, uh, to first responders from the police, I talked to union members, to lawyers, I talked to one intelligence officer, local politicians, academics, students, militants, uh, local and foreign journalists, bloggers, uh, etc. And in December 2014, I conducted additional fieldwork in Morocco, where I talked to approximately 25 people. However, because of the security situation in Libya, I was not able to conduct fieldwork there and had to rely mostly on secondary sources. Uh, these pictures, you can see pictures of some of my interviewees. On the left, you can see the parents of the young man who burned himself in the first city I mentioned, Monastir, Abdeslam Trimesh. And on the right, you can see me talking to, uh, to the head of the regional police union in um, Sidi Bouzid. So, in the case of North Africa, my book argues that successful informational cascades and subsequent social mobilization are the result of the strong involvement of respected intermediate actors who break the informational silence in uh, an authoritarian regime and signal to the population that important local actors are also unhappy or dissatisfied with the regime and willing to mobilize against it. So seeing allies of the regime or important actors usually tolerated by it take to the streets, atomized citizens realize that their individual grievances are actually shared by important local actors whose involvement indicates the presence of a clear opportunity for uh, contestation. Uh, in particular, the involvement of respected intermediate actors creates a perception of exceptionality, breaks the local cognitive biases, uh, which are originally in favor of the regime and allows for a successful informational cascade to occur. So again, informational cascades occur when individuals finally discount uh, their private information about the invincibility of the regime or its popularity and bandwagon en masse around a specific act of protest. Now, let's talk about um, the first case here, which is Sidi Bouzid. So, in Sidi Bouzid, the successful case in my study, um, social mobilization was clearly fueled by the workers' union, the local um, Union Générale des Travailleurs Tunisiens, or UGTT, and the Bar Association. So both, both associations did all they could to break the informational silence in the country and nourish social mobilization. So let's talk about the Workers' Association, for instance, the UGTT. Well, with more than 300,000 uh, members, the UGTT is the strongest workers' organization in the country and was taught under Ben Ali to be uh, completely co-opted by the regime. But following Boazizi's death, however, the um, strong involvement of the union sent a clear message to the population about the presence of a historical opportunity for um, contestation. So the first protests uh, following the death of Boazizi were organized and managed by local union members who actively sought to transform the incident from a personal tragedy into a political issue. So local union members accompanied Boazizi to the hospital and contacted their colleagues in neighboring towns and villages 
they were the ones who organized the first protest in front of the medical establishment where uh, the severely burnt young man was being treated. Uh, the buildings where the representations of the unions were located also served as a departure point for the daily marches that were uh, organized by the union. Um, it was uh, a union member, a man named Dari Nasser, a 51-year-old member of the uh, primary education union in Sidi Bouzid, which you can see on the picture here on the right, talking to me in uh, March 2012. But it was him who made the first speech in front of Bouazizi's suicide location and called the crowd to get rid of the fear in their heart. More crucially, perhaps, local workers capitalized on existing linkages with a number of national and international media outlets to nourish the informational cascade that was forming in the center of the country. They contacted a number of traditionally sympathetic um, uh, radios, such as Radio Kalima or Monte Carlo in Tunisia, but also reached out to foreign correspondents of major satellite channels, such as Al Jazeera and France 24. Union members also took the initiative to mobilize on the internet by filming and posting pictures and video of the events that were happening in Sidi Bouzid and neighboring towns. Now, it's important to remember that the UGTT, the Workers' Association, was never a monolithic organization and uh, was traditionally deeply divided between the national and the regional representations. So the national representation was very close to the regime, whereas the regional ones were traditionally a little bit more independent. So although the role of the top executives of the union remained ambiguous until the very end, uh, the increasing tension between the regional unions and the security services in the last week of December 2010 forced the, a reluctant leadership of the UGTT, the national one, to side with the regional unions uh, because the leadership, the national re leadership, realized that its own survival was dependent on the kind of support it was willing to provide um, its regional representations with. So the executive bureau was forced to approve a series of revolving strikes, re regional ones, re regional, sorry, revolving strikes across the country, which nourished mobilization and helped other Tunisians realize that the country was experiencing uh, a, a historical moment. So the involvement of the seemingly tamed union during the Tunisian revolution thus sent an important message to the general population by signaling to everyone that an exceptional event was happening in the country. The feeling of exceptionality culminated in January 12th, uh, when the 2011, when the uh, regional strike organized by the UGTT uh, in Sfax was attended, which is the Tunisia's second largest city, was attended by more than 80,000 people, which is a big number for a small country like Tunisia. Well, beyond the exceptional attendance, uh, it was the surprising participation of unexpected segments of the population, such as capitalists uh, or business owners, to use the words of one executive member of the UGTT, uh, also helped signal the universality of discontent in the country's second largest city. <clears throat> now, let's examine the other case, the dog that didn't bark. 
uh, or monastir, the place where uh, a very similar event uh, led to a very different result. So what happened in monastir? Well, before telling the second part of the story, I would like to share um, local actors' own assessment of the situation. So when asked, Tunisians uh, explained the difference between Sidi Bouzid and Monastir by the, and I'm quoting them, the calmer nature of the inhabitants of the Sahel region, or, uh, end of quote, or by the fact that a city which benefits from tourism and industrial facilities is better off than Sidi Bouzid. However, both explanations fail to explain the early abortion of Abdeslam Trimmesh informational cascade. So while, the, while Monastir is indeed richer than uh, the cities of the interior, Sidi Bouzid is located in the interior, uh, the inhabitants of Monastir shared the same grievances and frustrations than the rest of the Tunisian population. Um, so during the 2010-2011 revolutionary events, for instance, the city lost between 7 to 10 um, people. Uh, it's, it was a toll that was comparatively higher than the one in traditionally restive cities uh, with similar populations, such as El Jenduba or El Kef, that witnessed respectively uh, five and seven deaths during that same period. So people were as mobilized in Monastir as they were in those supposedly restive cities. So the alleged calmer or richer character of the population also does not explain why thousands of angry inhabitants congregated on March 11th during Abdeslam Trimis funerals. Uh, this unprecedented or largely unprecedented mobilization for a poor street vendor clearly illustrates the fact that the local population in Monastir was as frustrated with the regime as the rest of the population was. Finally, it is worth mentioning that even before the final year of Ben Ali's regime, Monastir also witnessed popular riots in the past, notably in 1996 when um, local youth rioted uh, following the murder of a young man who was beaten to death by the police. So if cultural or economic arguments do not explain the failure of Monastir's informational cascade, what does explain it then? Well, interviews conducted with local intermediate actors showed that the decision not to mobilize was consciously taken by the UGTT leaders who negatively assessed the consequences of mobilization. So various members of the regional union had no difficulty confessing that they just wanted to protect the economic advantages they had obtained in the past. So instead of encouraging mobilization, contacting the media or their colleagues in neighboring cities, the union consciously decided not to escalate the situation. So as emphasized by the father of Abdeslam Trimesh, the man I showed you earlier on the PowerPoint, uh, union members who came to pay their respects during his son's funerals, and I'm quoting the father of Abdeslam Trimesh now, well, union members who came did not do anything. They came to pay their respects, but were really defending the RCD, the ruling party. Uh, they were there as watchmen of the regime. They were guarding us, end of quote. Similarly, when asked, members of the local UGTT did not need to be pushed very hard to recognize it. Uh, 
So for the leadership of the regional union, even if the population of the city was largely dissatisfied with the regime, and I'm quoting him here, the UGTT in Monastère uh, had to maintain the special atmosphere of the uh, country and preserve tourism. The union was also trying to protect Tunisia's international reputation, as well as the reputation of its workers, end of quote. So even though the digital infrastructure, uh, so Facebook, uh, phones with cameras, um, the internet, proxy use, and all these things, was already mature in Tunisia in 2010, and even though local journalists knew of the protests in Monastir and had access to videos of people throwing rocks at uh, public buildings and, and shouting angry slogans at the government, the media treated it as a simple fait divers, a personal tragedy. I remember to talking to um, Lutfi Haji, the then secret correspondent of Al Jazeera in Tunis, who told me that because really it didn't, the, the, the union did not stress the political character of the suicide. For him, it remained really a simple fait divers, and I'm using his words, a minor incident without any political importance. Even, of course, if the only difference between the two events is the way the local actors um, handled the situation and sold it to outside actors. So there you have it. In one case, Sidi Bouzid, where the local union actively sought to inflate Boaziz's incident, eventually leading to the chain of events that led to the Tunisian Revolution, and the case of Monastir, where the local actors did uh, the opposite and nipped in the bud a potential revolutionary incident. Now, the same logic can be applied to the rest of the region when comparing successful and failed cases of social mobilization. So in Libya, the defection of intermediate actors Traditionally close to the regime explains why people mobilized massively in February 2011 and not in February 2006. So uh, <clears throat> very quickly in Libya in 2011, um, friends of Gaddafi, high-ranking members of uh, the government, the Minister of Immigration, the Minister of um, Justice, all defect very quickly and signaled to the rest of the population that something exceptional was happening in the country. Whereas in 2006, when Ben Razi experienced a very similar uh, protest, right, 10 people died uh, in February uh, 2006, those actors remained firmly with the regime. The same logic also explains why the Bahraini protests of 2011 were so virulent and massive compared to other protests in the past. Uh, in Bahrain, for instance, the early days of anti-regime protests were marked by the very surprising involvement of Sunni personalities who were never politically active before. In contrast, countries which did not witness uh, mass cases of social mobilization were largely characterized by the non-involvement of local intermediate actors. Uh, in Algeria, for instance, the country's main worker association, the powerful veterans association, uh, women organizations, the student association, the bar, the bar association, all remained stubbornly silent during the uh, January 2011 protest organized by uh, the pro-democracy groups in the country. While these associations could have used their prestige or their mere size to increase the dimension of the demonstrations which occurred after the Tunisian Revolution, uh, these actors decided to defend the status quo. Even very, even very um, 
militant groups like the uh, coordinations to fight uh, the, expense, the, the cost of living or uh, organizations to access decent housing in, in, in the country, in Algeria, even those very militant organizations did not support the pro-democracy movement in Algeria. So without a clear signal showing everyone the presence of a special window for political mobilizations, uh, Algerians remained um, were unable to uh, were unable to uh, <clears throat> so were unable to simultaneously update their private information and engage in collective action at the national level, even if popular anger. Uh, seems to be constantly simmering in, in Algeria under the surface, right? It's a country where more than 1,000 acts of protest happen every year. Uh, road blockades, uh, riots, um, people torching official buildings, people attacking the police, uh, uh, funerals turning into mass riots. So things happen in Algeria every single day. They have the potential of being revolutionary, but they don't cascade. Similarly, in Morocco, which is a more of a hybrid case in my book, most of the country's intermediate actors, notably unions, political parties, journalists, respected academics, popular artists, and religious leaders, clearly display their preference for the status quo and their opposition to the local pro-democracy movement that formed in the early weeks of 2011. So one good example is um, a popular hip-hop artist named Big, who um, called the pro-democracy activist clown. And there's a very nice uh, video clip of one of his songs where he literally shows them as, as freaky clowns, right? And he's clearly referring to those um, pro-democracy activists from the February 20th movement. So despite the wide, sense of, the wide sense of disgruntlement shared by large parts of the Moroccan population, evidenced, for instance, by the multiplication of desperate acts of protest, such as group emulations or new protests that attempt to target the prerogatives of the palace, and other acts of public desperation, none of the potentially revolutionary incidents which regularly happen in the country succeed in reaching a national dimension. And the latest example is uh, the case of a, of, a, of a fisherman who was crushed to death in a garbage truck a few weeks ago. People mobilized, a number of people mobilized around that particular incident, but not the local intermediate actors. So again, that particular protest did not spread uh, massively to the rest of the population. In summary, without uh, respected actors willing to use their prestige to raise the attention of the rest of the population, use their institutional networks to spread social mobilization uh, and their international contacts to call the attention of foreign media, cases of isolated protests remain largely confined to where they were born and hardly spread elsewhere in the country. So this is pretty much it, again, so that's the starting puzzle of my, of my book, the two cases, and you can see again the, the, the symmetry between the two cases, uh, both Abdeslam Trimish and Sidi Bouzid being treated in the same hospital. Again, one case cascaded and the other one did not. And uh, if you want, and I can, of course, I'll, I'll talk about Morocco, Algeria, and uh, Libya more in detail in my book, and I'll be very happy to uh, talk about these cases more in detail in the Q&A. Um, and uh, this is my attempt at replication. Uh, this is my trying experimental social sciences and trying to see if slapping a street vendor in the streets of Montreal would spark uh, mass mobilization. Uh, it did not happen. Thank you very much.